Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Kevin, what are you doing? Hi, Nancy. I'm celebrating. Celebrating uh, what? Well, it was a rapture. You know, uh, the, 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 the Christians are all gone, so think about all that's going to happen here. The stupid wars are going to stop. The uh, medical research is going to keep on going. It's not going to be hindered. There's no one going to be raping of the kids or genital mutilation. There's not going to be any uh, fraud uh, pastors like Pat Roberts. It's, it's amazing. It's a great time. Uh, 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 Kevin? What? Uh, none of that happened. There, there was no rapture. What? There's no rap? It didn't happen? No. God damn it. Hello, I'm Dr. Hector Garcia, and I took a left at the valley. I know we shouldn't have to scream that we're atheists. You know, we don't have non-astrologers and all that. But with religious people taking over the world, I mean, we can either speak up or be pushed into a corner. I'm proud to be an atheist, a skeptic, a non-believer, an infidel, a heathen. I call it how I see it. You just call it faith in unsubstantiated claims That's something to be ashamed I'm an Coming at you from some demonic pentagram, this is Left of the Valley. My name is Kevin, and some guy told me he was going to kick the crap out of me. I told him good luck because I'm on a liquid diet. <laughs> and joining me as usual is the Batwoman to my shepherd pie costume of a Robin. Hi, Nancy. Oh, what an odd couple we are today. <laughs> Skeleton crew today, just you and I. It just Wow, well, we've done it before. We can do it again. Absolutely. And maybe today. And <laughs> maybe. <laughs> today <laughs> time will tell how was your week dear oh it was pretty good we had a wonderful spring for two days yes yeah that brought everything back to life and here we are in rain again yeah i'm kind of disappointed that the uh, rapture didn't really happen oh uh but you know at least it gives us a, a chance to keep on doing our show i guess <laughs> well there was a, there was a zero chance to begin with so <laughs> the bar wasn't set too high with oh you just crushing all my <laughs> my hopes and dreams here well do you really i mean really when it comes is there do you have the secret hope that maybe it today's the day you never know yeah. uh, you know what i think i've got a better theory i think it already happened but everybody's too crappy to have been raptured so nobody went we're, we're dealing with the left of the rapture leftovers <laughs> if there wasn't if the criteria for going into heaven is what most christians say you know what i'll probably be raptured by mistake because <laughs> I think I'm a better Christian than most of them well, as long as it doesn't happen in the middle of the broadcast yeah, right? that's right if there's a big silence there's a everyone. big drop all of a sudden <laughs> well welcome back my dear today we're going to be talking to Dr. Ben Davis about nuclear power oh and, wow okay let me put this right nuclear not nuclear nuclear power there you go do it right people yeah but in the meantime let's do a bit of chit chat um, Bill Cosby. They oh. found him guilty. Oh, man. 
What can we say about who Bill would Cosby? Who would have suspected way back when he was the darling yes. of every, every comedian, every family person, looked to Bill Cosby as the embodiment of the regular guy? He was supposed you know, to be such he? a good role model oh, for, for the African-American community. He had this wholesome dad image. He was he was he almost Uncle Bill that you wanted to call him because, you oh, know. Oh, yeah. And then he turns out to be a complete creep. I was like, ah, yeah. And then he got on. his doctorate in education, and we all felt, wow. You know, his show, you know, yeah. got to look at the positive here. His show was given such hope to the African-American community because his show, in his show he was playing a doctor. You know, a successful man with a, raising a family, and you know, with, with several children in, in in America, and it was something to uh, for the African American community to aspire to, and you know, I, I it kind of feels tainted now. You know, that's well, a shame. It, 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 it was an, an inspiration to the African American community, but it was also an inspiration for the white community as well because. Gosh, they're just like us. Yeah, well, yeah, wow. of course, exactly. You know, he's, he's just like us. The yes. family is going through the same trials, the same tribulations. And I think um, in some way, many eyes were open to the fact that skin color doesn't make any difference. Mm-hmm. You know, good guys are good guys, and families have the same um, um, trials and errors and aspirations. Exactly. And, yeah, it was a, it was really a unifying force in many ways. I just, I just hope that the good that he did as a television star star uh outweighs the creep factor that he in his later years i I hope i hope his legacy is not completely tainted because of that i i try to look for the silver lining in this i mean yeah i do too although i i think we're in an era in the last couple of years of having our idols topple i mean yes you take harvey weinstein you take uh, all of a sudden now tom brokaw has gotten some yeah tom brokaw has gotten i haven't heard about this yeah he had a um he's got one allegation of sexual abuse which may or may not be true it's it's really difficult at this time but what i'm saying is those people who we've put on on pedestals mm-hmm. and admired them, you know. All of a sudden, the the, the dark side yeah. is being revealed, and I think it's difficult, especially in an age where role models would be particularly um, uh, helpful. Yeah. Uh, not helpful, but particularly. Insp- I don't want to use what's a good word. The role models are particularly necessary. Okay. I guess you know. Yeah, necessary is good. Yeah, in in order to motivate people and say yes, there is a lot of good in the world as you were saying you try to yeah. stay optimistic well, I, I try right so. I mean yeah it's, it's, I try to always look at the the bright side of everything whether it's from um, Bill Cosby or in the atheist community yeah. David Silverman or or even Lawrence Krauss I mean I try not to yeah. throw the baby with the bath water yeah, I, do, I do too it's just becoming maybe it's just reality yeah, you know? yeah exactly and we're going through a period maybe it's a good thing because let's see what comes out of it yeah I think that's that's always the thing I, I'm just very concerned that people will just toss away absolutely everything because yeah. of, of an incident like that and I, I think that's a, it's a mistake we'd be making um, did you uh, did you see the uh, president the French president Emmanuel Macron at the, <laughs> at the Congress at the US Congress yeah. my god yeah the, the Trump's new BFF well right? you know he, they were buddy buddy until they he were, gave that, that speech that was a bromance as everybody says yeah it was a bromance until he gave that speech and he basically trashed Trump and his policies and it's like okay he just told him like it is do you think Macron was 
with all of the BFF stuff, do you think there was a cynical aspect to that where he was saying, yeah, I can out-touch you, I can out-thumbs up you, I can out-do whatever, you know, a subtle way of trying to flatter Trump and yet saying F you at the same time? So you're asking me if there was something political about what yeah. he did? <laughs> Yeah, probably. Heaven forbid that there should be anything. But do you? I mean, do you think that might have been a part of what he was doing? I think so. I think. I think. I think that's a very French way of doing things. You know, uh, it's a bit like I, I'm. Uh, I reminisce of the times. You know, when they were uh, starting to ban the burqa and then the in France, and people were condemning the French for doing so. But if you're if you're French, if you met, meet somebody who's who's French, they're not going to say to you, um, "Do this because." They're just gonna say something like, "Come on, this is France. Loosen up, relax, yeah. right?" And I think I think Macron was doing the same thing with Trump. It's like, "Come on, dude, relax. The Paris Accord's a good thing. Join in." And I think that's that's their attitude, right? Yeah. That's 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 how they they do things in France. So he did turn his uh, speech to, uh, towards Syria, free trade, and the Paris Accords, which are all big points and uh, against Trump. Mm-hmm. He urged the U.S. not to retreat from world affairs. Quote, you can play with fears and anger for a time, but they don't construct anything. Yeah. That's a huge, like, you know what, Trump? You, 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 you mongering, your fear mongering has got to stop. And this is the French president. And he's become a bit of a darling of the world for standing up to Trump in that sense without, you know, still shake the guy's hand and be nice to him and all that, but at the same time, tell it like it is. Yeah. Which, you know, you have to admire that. Yeah. Well, you know, we've got that there are certain allies in the in the world and and allies have to keep up their their part. And Trump is saying, yes, you're allies and I'll always be there for you. But he, you know, he I was going to say stabs people in the back, Mm. but he does everything he can to tear apart agreements and 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 um, alliances if they don't fit his view of the world. It's it's difficult. It'd be, it'd be insane if the U.S. decided to have France as an enemy all of a sudden. Yeah. I mean, France has been one of their biggest allies. I bought as much as Canada forever. Forever. Forever since, since the right. country began. And this is what, as a French-Canadian person myself, it's one of the things that anchors me so much when I see uh, in popular culture in the United States how they mock France on a regular basis. Mm-hmm. You guys have no idea. Uh, you know, you realize that with, without France, there would be no United States of America. Mm-hmm. You know, George Washington was funded by the French. You know, he was armed by the French. The Statue of Liberty came from France. This, <laughs> you know, they've been your allies forever. You know, yeah. yeah, they might have some attitude on a regular basis, sure. But come on. I mean, let's let's give credit where credit is due. And if you keep mocking the French like that because, oh, well, you know, they're French. Uh, eventually, <laughs> the yeah. relationship might sour. Yeah, well, we'll... You know, let's keep our fingers crossed, and, and as Trump says, let's see what happens. Yeah. Uh, we got to talk about this Toronto attack that oh. happened this week. This is a uh, 25-year-old Alec Manissian. Yeah. Uh, he faces 10 counts of first-degree oh. murder and 13 attempted murder. He was especially horrible and vicious. Yeah, he just decided to get into a rental van and decide to mow down people. On the side, uh, yeah, 10, 10 people who just happened to be there yeah. at the time. And... and, and, and people, first of all, they thought right away uh, ISIS attack, right? They thought, you know, uh, Muslim mm-hmm. terrorism. But it turns out, uh, at this point, they're actually saying that this guy, there's a rumor that this guy was actually trying to um, mow down women, especially. Because yeah. apparently he's some loser uh, who's part of a group called, they call, they call the IC, the Inventory... 
involuntary celibate. Uh-huh. And he, he goes online saying, you know, oh, geez, I wish I could get a girlfriend. I wish I could get laid, blah, blah, blah. And now he gets frustrated and then decides to, to kill women. What, what, I'm sorry. What a loser, this guy. Well, this, uh, a loser with a, a lot of mental yeah, he, issues. Yeah, this, guy, sure. this guy's got an issue. He's got yeah. a problem. He's, oh, he's got sure. a problem. Uh, I mean, I think, I think every guy sooner or later in their life starts to think, wow, you know, I... The women aren't looking at me so much, you know, what the hell is wrong? But to turn around and start blaming women and then to attack them, that's that's a step of, of oh, crazy. Yeah. I mean, I'm, so, I'm sorry. I've, I've got no sympathy for this guy. No, it was, it, it, it was an awful tragedy. Yeah. But did not the Toronto police... Exactly. <laughs> did, did they not handle this in a way that should be a role model? For yes. Countries trying to deal with terrorists. For American listeners, I might not know. Uh, there was a police officer that arrived on scene after he kind of crashed uh, the van into uh, some kind of a pole there. Uh, that took out his gun and aimed him at him and ordered him to st- to step out and lie down on the ground. And the guy, the the uh, this Alec fellow, uh, basically wanted to die suicide by cop. Mm-hmm. He said, he "Go ahead, shoot, shoot me, shoot me, shoot, shoot me. me." And then some people, some civilians in the area, were saying to the cop, "Shoot him." Mm-hmm. Right? Shoot him. And you know what? If he had shot the guy, nobody would have bat an eye. No. I mean, he totally would have been justified. Absolutely. And then the guy pulls out an object, which turned out to be a phone or a wallet, that kind of, for a moment, it looked like a gun and aimed it at the cop. And the cop still kept his cool and still did not shoot until he arrested him, the guy without, one guy, and without firing a shot. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. And, you know, that is police training, and that is what we should be seeing in the United States. Yeah. When you look at the video and you see the um, the perpetrator, mm-hmm. you know, with his hand out, agitated, and you see the policeman calmly moving yeah. forward. He's got his gun on him, but he's, he's like, got completely focused and says, get on the ground, get, get on, on the ground. ground. And it was just a beautiful, beautiful moment of training. And uh, you know what? Very proud. Very proud moment. Very proud. And none of the other um, police that were there took out their guns yeah. and leveled them before. Yeah. The, what was his name? Cam? The the, uh, the police policeman? officer? Yeah. I, I, I don't know. I, I think I don't so. Know. But it was, it was a... Um, it, it, it was a, a group uh, triumph yes. of that particular... Um, Cooler heads um, prevailed. Yeah, from, from their... I, I want to say what their, their... That group from the... I'm missing. But the priest... Not the precinct, but whatever group mm-hmm. that was there, they all behaved in a very restrained... Professional. Professional way to be able to... Um, keep that guy alive yep. so they could question him and find out and nobody was trigger happy it was just exactly. fabulous and if, I, I, I don't want to speculate here but I, I can't help but think but if this incident happened in New York this oh. guy would have been riddled with you know 500 bullets <laughs> exactly and, and, and that would have been the end of it and you know what if that had happened if he had shot the guy like I said I don't think anybody would have blamed the cop no it would have been a justified it would have been, it would have been justified but the fact that he had enough restraint to actually say no we're going to arrest this guy and we're going to find out what the hell is going on in his head and we're not going to have all these unanswered questions now they can actually study him they can actually say okay well what made this guy tick and now you can actually learn from the incident right. and I think that's what our American neighbors need to realize is you know, I know it's a lot easier. It's a lot easier to pull out your gun and just bang, you're done. It's a lot easier. But 
it doesn't advance the cause. It doesn't advance uh, the. It doesn't solve the problem, and no. it doesn't. It, it does. Yeah. So, and of course, the, the funny thing is, is this case is going to be studied in the later years at police academies mm-hmm. as to what it was done, and it was done by the book, and it was done right. So big, big thumbs up. Yeah, exactly. Guy. It would be interesting to know the difference between the the training of the um, Canadian police, and I don't know whether he was a municipal policeman or RCMP. It would be interesting to know what's the difference in training in those situations. Well, they have. Uh, I know for a fact. I don't know how many hours I've, I've read it, but I didn't write it down. Uh, de-escalation. Yeah. is a big part of the training in in, uh, in the RCMP and uh, the Canadian police, how to de-escalate the situation. In the United States, they barely touch it. I think back in the 50s and 60s when the police were trained, it used to be um, training to use just as much force as justified mm-hmm. the situation. And then that changed um, sometimes in the in the the nineties, you know, from just from uh, appropriate force to Take them out if needed. Yeah. And, and how that jumped, I, I, I don't have the history of that, but could, it used could, to be the same kind of... of we training. could almost do an entire show on yeah. the differences in policing and our judicial system yeah. and our prison system between Canada and the U.S., and I think it'd be a fascinating show, actually. Oh, I think so, too. Okay. Um, one more thing. Uh, I... I I found something this week. Now, um, you remember our good old friend Eli Bosnick? Sure. From the God Awful Movie podcast, oh, The Scathing Atheist. Guys. Yeah. Hilarious man. Oh, funny. Hilarious man. And we had a blast with Eli. And this week I was listening to their podcast, God Awful Movies. And he did something absolutely brilliant. And I had to share it. I actually wrote to Eli and I asked, is his permission to share it? I even asked Andrew, their lawyer, who basically holds the leash of Eli <laughs> because somebody's got to. He's got to. Uh, so this is from the uh, Puzzle in the Thunder storm guys llc and what he did is they they have you know when you're on social media or you're a podcast or something like that or even if you're just an atheist and i was spoken atheist out there you always have this guy this guy that comes up to you that says you know what i'll save you you're 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 an ass you're a piece of shit you're gonna burn in hell but i love you (laughs) uh and i'm gonna save you and you need to do this you need to do that and that's why you don't do it because you want to sin and that's why you're that's why you're gay or any that that kind of stupid nonsense every atheist out there that is actually out of the closet has faced this this fellow so the guys at gam have received a whole bunch of emails from this guy they named quote mike Oh, okay. Uh, and what they did is, the, this guy, he's one of those guys that obviously doesn't listen to the show, but emails them on a very regular basis to just basically wag his finger at them. So what Eli did with his wife, Anna, is they took the uh, the a lot of the phrases in the emails, the original phrases in the email, and made a song. Oh, really? In response to this guy. And it's absolutely brilliant. So with your their permission, I'm going to play this song right now. This is a bit of the uh, part of the God-awful music, the last uh, show they had on episode 140, Bible Man, Silas and the Gossip Queen. And it lasts about three minutes. There's a quick intro by No Illusion there. Listen to this. It's absolutely brilliant. Hold on. Hey, folks. You know, it's not very often that we get to talk about listener responses here on our show, and that's because mostly... You're all pretty cool. Uh, That is, when Eli doesn't write sketches that some people interpret as pro-bullying. Because it was! No, you're right, it was. But but there's one person (laughs) whose feedback we'd like to give some special attention to this week. Let's call him Mike. 
Mike has contacted us on every podcast we do and every possible medium every few months since we started podcasting. Now, we're pretty sure Mike has never actually heard any of our shows since he never addresses anything we say or do, but he knows there's atheists on it, and apparently that's enough. And the thing that makes Mike special is that he's obsessed with our sexuality, and he <laughs> likes to rhyme. <laughs> Seriously. <laughs> So I mean, those are two great things. <laughs> I mean, when you think about it, yeah. <laughs> like you're gonna have to explain further why. No, Mike's yeah, annoying. exactly, exactly. In the abstract, this is a good thing so far. But in homage to today's episode, here's a special song that we made up of a selection of 100 percent real quotes from Mike's email that we like to call "That's Why You're Queer." Lived in this land since I was a boy You take the Lord's name in vain as though it were a toy I love you and want you to really learn But you're fakes and someday you will burn That's why you're queen You hate your life That's why you're queen You must not love your wife I, I live no why you're queer also you're why trump got elected all caps you abortion supporting murderous horse you have allowed the devil into your back doors but when you stand before god you'll shake with fear you deny god to excuse that you're queer that's why you're queer why you're queer. Are you getting these emails? want to know. Right back soon, Reverend Pastor Mike. You will die someday, though you think you won't. You think you know everything, but fake news you don't. The devil has told you you know it all, but when you die that you will have to fall. That's why you're queer. Why you're there is queer. only one God to fear. No other God. There is only one God to fear. Just mine. That's why you're queer. All right. See you on Twitter. <laughs> oh that is yeah. absolutely brilliant. It's brilliant. It's absolutely brilliant. I, I, as soon as I heard this, I was laughing. I was laughing so hard. I said, I have to have this put on the I, air. I, I mean, it's... it's 
I mean, it's the, the words, the production, oh. the voice, the, everything about that is fabulous. Eli, my friend, this was oh absolutely, absolutely brilliant. I, the, oh, what fun. Thank you so much for the, all the guys that puzzled in a thunderstorm. This was a, I could not imagine a more perfect response than that type of no. Bible preaching, Bible thumping guy that arrests us all. Oh, they my need God. to go for a wider audience oh. on that. That is. Uh, I mean, how many? How many? We don't have that many really fun atheist tunes. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you, you can count them on on one finger, <laughs> or maybe that's, two. <laughs> that's right. Oh my God! It was absolutely so. Thank, thanks again to the guys from uh, God Awful Movies for this. And oh, this is just precious. I think I should make it my ringtone. I think they ought to animate it, make a video, and put it out there. Oh, oh that's brilliant! I love that. Oh yeah. Yeah, next time video, talk, video. Yeah. I'll, I'll send a message to Eli. So maybe make it video. Sure, make him make uh, him have more work now that he's so clever. <laughs> <laughs> we should we should try to bring him back. It's been a while. We miss him. We miss Eli. Yeah. All right, my dear Nancy, you got a top ten for us? Well, actually, I do. Um, I got inspired when it was so warm. <laughs> <laughs> the two days like, that it was yeah, warm. Yeah, it was like spring has sprung and the it was almost summer, summer weather. Coming. Are you kidding? It was yeah, like twenty eight. Yeah, it was. It was. It was wonderful so um i thought that this week i would do the 10 top extreme sports because we really think about let's get out there and move around and and do something exciting right except today when it's raining but that's okay (laughs) okay so this list comes from a website called the richest which is sort of a a lifestyle um website and Mm -hmm. they do a lot of fun things so um here we go this was published in November of 2017, so it's pretty well up to date. And the number 10 of the most extreme sports, I don't know, Kevin, if you've ever heard of creaking? Creaking? Creaking, yeah, this is the number 10, and what it is... Sounds like it goes with grave sucking. (laughs) (laughs) This is whitewater kayaking taken to the limit, and it started in the 1980s um, when they built, started to build really durable kayakers so extreme kayakers use their kayaks to plunge off high waterfalls Ooh, off you go uh, and it's an adrenaline rush and so it's the pl- get closer to your mic hmm? get closer to your mic oh okay so it's an adrenaline rush mm-hmm. the way all of these sports are of course but this is this is believe it or this is number 10 wow um so <laughs> it the, the plunge off the waterfalls is supposed to be really fantastic and the adrenaline comes from not hitting the jagged rocks or being sucked out <laughs> into the water. Oh, so, so the adrenaline comes from not being maimed to death by pointing rocks. <laughs> exactly. There we go. Exactly. Why they call it creaking, I guess they go to the different creeks. Oh, creeks? But yeah, oh, yeah. I don't know. But anyway, that's creaking. Base jumping. Do you know of about you know about base jumping? No, about base jumping. People throw themselves or jump off of base structures from buildings. Very tall buildings. Yeah. (laughs) So anyway, that's number nine is base jumping. Um, Number eight, I haven't heard of this one, toe-in surfing. 
Toe in surfing. Yeah, it, it, surfers like to drop off from the high waves and so forth, but this is um, a, 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 an extreme sport where they want to latch on to the highest possible waves, and that's really difficult to paddle from them. But with the invention of the jet ski, mm. the, the problem seems to have been solved. So they have actual surfing stars that do this, and it's a really rush uh, doing it on with jet skis. So I guess, I guess what they do is they use a jet ski to tow the guy yeah. onto the top of the wave and then let him go. Don't let him go, right. Yeah, yeah, okay. And, but now they're able to reach the top of the wave. They, the other problem of doing that is being thrown into the sharp reefs pretty well like creaking so yeah. or being held under the water in case of a wipeout, which is... It doesn't take much. much. I mean, when I, when I went to Mexico, I mean, I was <laughs> swallowed by a wave and it's not even probably a meter high above... The, 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 the edge of the water there. Yeah. It was enough to send me for a tumble, like tumbling down below. And I was like, holy crap. <laughs> it was just a small, regular wave. So I'm thinking, you got these gigantic waves with these surfing guys? Jeez. Yeah, that's I know. a monster. I, I know. When you when you experience just a little bit of that, you can understand how, not if, estimate, and how crazy those guys have to be to do it. Don't estimate the force of water. No, that's true. Number seven, free soloing. The free soloing is rock climbing without any oh, uh, harnesses. I think Tom Cruise is a big fan of that. It could be, yeah. But the, anyway, there's no safety harnesses, ropes, or other equipment in case you slip up. So it's like concentrate or... Fall. <laughs> yeah, which is no fun. Uh, number six, um, I've seen I've seen this, and I, I think this is becoming more popular. It's number six. It may, may move up. Wingsuit flying. Oh, yes. Yeah, would you do that? Oh, I'm terrified of heights. No, yeah, yeah. no, it, it, it would. I, God, <laughs> it would take a lot. <laughs> yeah, they um, they have a ratio or a, a, a glide if you're a scientific person of 2.5 meters for every meter of descent, and only those with at least 200 skydives are allowed to try the sport. It's that dangerous, so it's not as though you and I can climb into no, the suits no. and hold hands and close our eyes and jump. You see some fantastic footage, though, of these guys, guys with yeah. these GoPro cameras on their head as yeah. they're doing this, and they're flying through canyons. Like, my God, oh, it's amazing. It, it, yeah, it's, it, it's scary. Um, number five, ice climbing. Mm. So those who live in areas uh, where the winter is fierce, they try out the uh, the rock climbing and that's scaling the formations of vertical ice like frozen waterfalls and cliffs and things like that so um, they they use a, a method called step cutting which is chipping out the ice with an ice pick to create their own foothold and that actually comes from the British believe it or not mm. So they they've developed different different ways to do that but um, it's it's pretty extreme. Especially, you know, if it gets slippery, if the, you know. But at any rate, that's mm-hmm. ice climbing is number five. Number four is kind of the reverse of ice climbing. It's volcano surfing. What? Volcano surfing. It entails, this is how it works. You climb up the volcano and then you surf down the side by using plywood plywood boards and those boards are reinforced with steel, metal or formica and people do it while sitting down but veterans of the sport do it upright. Sounds easy until you hit volcano rocks. I haven't seen it. 
Okay, but that's just that's weird. number four. Well, thank you, because I thought, thank goodness. I mean, for, because the danger when you said volcano serving, I thought you know, like a lava surge and they're actually yeah, no, they're like, no, no, that'd be that'd be incredibly insane. Yeah, well, some of these sports, I think you have to have a little insanity yeah. to try them, or you know, nerves of steel, or really want to prove a lot to yourself. Mm-hmm. But some some might be, you know, in a, in a lesser degree, some of them would be fun, but. Taken. That's why they call them extreme. Yeah. Number three, cave diving. Oh yes. Yeah, and that was started years ago by Jacques Cousteau. He pioneered it, and it's diving uh, into underwater caves, and that's where the danger uh, lies. In case your equipment fails, uh, that the cave makes it harder to make a quick ascent. So, you know, getting to the surface can be can be a problem <laughs> okay so number two is what they call high lining and we've all seen the tightrope acts in the yep. circus and so um this is the same kind of thing and i forgot what that the fellow's name was that did it in new york yeah it was and, philippe something yeah that's right philippe. that's right that's right we've forget, talked forget about it last before thing. that's right yeah and so that's the number number two um because there's no safety net on that so one. Stay real walking, walking between two buildings at a very high. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. And the danger level increases exponentially with the height. The wind and everything. And the wind, yeah. yeah. They need they need this very long pole to do it, too. It's uh, just like, yeah. just for balance. Suction cups on their shoes, I guess. I don't know how they... <laughs> yeah. Okay, number one was very surprising to me because I... Um, well, let me just tell you, but rather than editorializing, it's called kite skiing. Okay. This yeah. is the most. Do you, you know about kite yes, skiing? Yes, I do. Oh, good. What do you know about it? Well, it's it's, it's a bit. You're a bit like on a little surfboard. Yeah. But you get this kind of giant kite, and you're using it to propel yourself. Yeah. It, it pulls you essentially. So, yeah, they it's, do it's it. Almost, it's almost like the old windsurfer, but instead of having it attached to the board, you have it as a kite, and it's pulling you. Yeah, and they generally do it in uh, wide open fields or frozen lakes. Do you think that that is more dangerous than highlining? No, I don't. That's why but this particular website has it as, at number one. That's why it surprised me. Yeah, it, it is surprising but when you think about it. I don't know whether or not, you know, the, the lift, you know, once they're in the air, the dangers. Yeah, of, but you could always let go of the kite if you want. You could always let go, yeah. depending on how high you are. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> but even if you don't go at a that's very right, high height, you're that's falling a, into water. <laughs> yeah, that's, a, that's on every every kite skier's t-shirt. You could always let go. <laughs> you could always let go. <laughs> that's the bottom. Yeah, when you're in between We've two buildings. Yeah. Uh, the World Trade Center between the two buildings, you can't let go. <laughs> you just no. can't. Well, I guess, you know, they, de- depending on, on what they want to accomplish they can have a t-shirt that says never let go or you can always let go <laughs> you this is a, this is a silly question but i, I had an african-american friend of mine one time tell me that these kind of crazy sport is mostly a caucasian thing you think that's true i mean i'm sure there are some african-american members of the community that and uh, other ethnicities that engage in those things but it seems to be a predominant according to him it seemed to be a predominantly white thing i you know i've never noticed that no, but now that you mention it, because in, in, in his mind, in his family, he said only white people are crazy enough to do, pull that shit. Well, maybe. Yeah, I mean, maybe you're jumping so. off a perfectly 
capable building, why the hell would you do such a thing? Yeah. You know? And you know, say, oh, I don't know. That's a good question. I'm sure there are a lot of really good sociological reasons yeah. for that, but I think you're right because I'm trying to re- not that I watch sports. You you watch sports and things more often than I do, but if you try to think of any of the top stars in any of these extreme sports, and you you're looking for a Chinese face or yeah, uh, exactly. a black face or an Indian. Uh, East Indian face, you don't see them all that Not often. as much. But that could yeah. be because of socioeconomic things too, right? But that was running through my mind yeah, as yeah. well. Well, anyways, if our listeners know, if you, have, if you have a different opinion on that, let us know. Absolutely. Perfect. Or if you've engaged in an extreme sport and would like to share your experience, <laughs> experiences with us. You know. Anyway, any of those that you would try, Kevin, that, you know, any one of those extreme sports that you do? I might, you know, the funny thing is, is I might, I might be tempted to do that number one the, the, the kite uh, surfing the kite I might be tempted to, to try something like that uh, the rest of them I sound too much of a chicken for the rest of them <laughs> well, I'd come out and watch you no, okay. <laughs> okay, that's good. as close as I get to the extreme I, it, would, it would take a lot I mean I, I went uh, um what do you call those? Uh, not wave surfing, um, water skiing. I went water skiing like once in my life, ah. and uh, and I was a kid, and I haven't done it since. I've done like plenty of regular skiing, but you know, I don't know. I've I'm not too attracted no. towards these things, and I'm too I'm too afraid of heights to try anything that's base jumping or yeah. skydiving or anything like that. Is no, no. I, I love terraforma. <laughs> I love terraforma. <laughs> <laughs> No, we like we like the safety factor in our lives, right? <laughs> <laughs> That's right. All right, my dear. So let's move on to the other part of our show, the little segment we always love called Another Brilliant Moment. Brought to you by religion. It's only you and I reacting to these things, but that's okay. We'll make it fun anyway. Did you hear that Ugandan president... All right, there we go. Uganda starts right away. Uh, Yoweri Museveni... He's a conservative evangelical Christian. He wants to ban oral sex because, quote, the mouth is for eating, not for sex. Would that, be, I mean, if you take, if you take that literally to the extreme, does that mean just regular kissing would be banned too? Maybe that's a good question. I, I mean, know. if you don't eat, I mean, you're kissing and eating, you're using the same equipment. You're also talking and talking. So if the mouth is for eating, shut up. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So, Museveni, who signed a law making homosexuality illegal in Uganda in 2014, issued a public warning concerning the supposed danger of oral sex during a televised press conference last week. He said, Let me take this opportunity to warn our people publicly about the wrong practices indulged and promoted by some of the outsiders. Some of the outsiders, right? So that's how you get people to listen. Outsiders are telling you to have oral sex. One of them is what they call oral sex. The mouth is for eating, not for sex. Adding, We know the address of sex. We know where sex is. (laughs) There's an address, apparently. Take a left to Albuquerque. (laughs) So um, he's an evangel- uh, evangelical conservative. Museveni uh, um, had led a crackdown on sexual freedoms in Uganda in recent times. His proposal to ban all oral sex forms the signing of the Anti-Homosexuality Act of 2014, which made it illegal to be gay in Uganda. Under the law, repeat offenders were to be sentenced to 14 years in prison, and Ugandans were required to denounce known homosexual. So not only that, you had to actually snitch on people. 
Also in 2014, after introducing the Anti-Homosexuality Act, Museveni claimed that oral sex could cause worms. <laughs> declaring, you push your mouth there and you come back with worms and they enter your stomach because it's the wrong address. Uh, worms? Maybe he's talking about that famous Ugandan cuisine or something. I, I don't know. I, I have no, I have no idea. He and Pat Robertson should form an alliance of some kind. <laughs> you know, it's just the the fantasy. Of, the buddy buddy the, cop story. Yeah, <laughs> it's mainly if it feels good, it's bad. Oh. You know, anything that feels good, we ought to go. People ought to go to artificial insemination, and that's it. If it makes your body feel good, it's a sin. It's terrible. Don't do it. Worms. Worms. It's it's not a worm. It's called a penis. Oh, <laughs> it might look like a worm sometimes, oh, but it's a penis. <laughs> there, are just too, there are too many ways to go in this topic <laughs> that we need to stay away from immediately. <laughs> this is where Kirsten would come in with a quip. That'd oh, be hilarious. Yeah. Uh, in, well, he's also, he's obviously a religious extremist. And also, in addition, in 2014, the State Minister for Ethics and Integrity in Uganda, the Right Reverend Father Simon uh, Lokodo, said that men raping girls was also natural while suggesting that heterosexual rape was morally preferable to consensual homosexual activity. Uganda, what? that's not the place to visit. If, if I understand that that heterosexual rape was is morally preferable homosexual activity. activity. Consensual homosexual Consensual. Activity. Yeah. Um... Uh, uh, um. Yeah, what do, you, what do you say to that? What do you say to that? Right? There, I, I, this... This is where you get the their morality, Nancy. It comes from the Bible. Come on, that's moral right there, doesn't this? <laughs> oh, talk about moral perversions. That's certainly one of them. Talk about pervert. <laughs> on the on the Jim Backer show this Monday, host Jim Backer at uh, is it Backer or is it Baker? Baker. Baker. Sorry. So Jim Baker has some. He sells these buckets of food. Has some distressing news for anyone who is gullible enough to believe his religious scam. According to him, God has already sent two people in this world <laughs> who were destined to discover a cure for cancer, but they were aborted before they had a chance. <laughs> I want to see his source. How the hell does he know that? I want to see the source because of that. Because he, God talks to him every night. Oh, that's it. That's it. He gets he gets all of those. All so God said, "Hey, I sent two guys. You guys aborted them." That's right. You're Good luck. That's right. You're on your own now, kid. I mean, just everything that humans have missed out on, it's because those people were aborted. So it's all the liberals' fault that we don't have peace, harmony, better science, <laughs> better climate control. It's all their fault. You remember that old joke? That old joke where you guys... And atheists. Oh, it's atheists. Oh, of course. Because they believe it. It reminds me of that old joke, you know, that uh, the, the guy is drowning. And the guy comes in with a canoe and says, come on in, come on in. He says, no, no, don't worry, God will save me. And then again, the second boat comes in, come on in, man, hurry up. No, no, God will save me. And then there's a helicopter that flies by. Man, it's your last chance. Grab my hand. The guy says, don't worry, guys, God will save me. And the guy, of course, drowns. He ends up at the pearly gates and he says, guy says to God, says, what's the point of believing in you? And you're not going to be, uh, you're not going to send, you're not going to rescue me. And God says, I sent two freaking boats and a helicopter. What more do you want? <laughs> Well, he said two abortion, uh, two cure cancer, uh, ah, two guys that would cure cancer, and apparently we reported them. Oh, well. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, all the evil in the world is due to the aborted fetuses of those who would have made a, a, a much better contribution exactly. to our lives. So according to ba uh, ba uh, Baker, America will be cursed if we keep murdering our babies. I believe we are doomed as a nation. Whatever you think, I don't care. 
I, I, uh, I don't care because I believe in God. And God says, thou shalt not kill. And to murder the unborn babies, I don't believe God can look the other way. So this guy is a guy who's making a living by selling buckets of food and approach for the apocalypse. <laughs> this, yeah. this is just feeding into his narrative, right? Okay. Uh, I, I guess. It's not going to be a cure for cancer, but the apocalypse is coming, so you better buy my bucket of food. Yeah, that whole bucket of food thing is uh, it's such a big ripoff. <laughs> and they had... Um, at one point, somebody actually did taste testing on, and oh, it was on, it was inedible. Soul. Yeah, inedible stuff. I'm not sure you could pay me enough for that. No, well, it wasn't for eating. It was just for buying and selling anybody that, oh. that actually ate it, you know, and storage. <laughs> but that, I know. <laughs> <laughs> oh, good old Jim Baker. Okay, next story. So after being offered the star role in, next, in the next Mummy movie, Pat Robertson offered his views on uh, why there are women who are atheists. Now, according in his mind, women who are atheists are openly hostile to any mention of God have something seriously wrong in their past. Hmm. Answering a viewer's question on why someone she witnessed that was that hostile, Pat Robertson said that there was probably abuse or rape in her past. Perhaps the rapist hurt her and then acted like it was behaving in a biblical manner. <laughs> So, I guess he raped her and he says, bless you, my child. <laughs> well, that was the Catholic priest. Or perhaps he told her that God said that he was a man's duty to rape his daughter or something to that effect. Regardless, Pat Robinson believes the hostility is because this woman had bad experiences she associates with God. She's an atheist because she was raped. I want to see the scientific studies on that. You don't need to. You need to have faith. Oh, oh that... <laughs> Thank you for bringing me back to reality with one sentence, Kevin. No, <laughs> I feel so, so much better. It couldn't possibly be because atheists are sick of being told they're possessed by demons or under demonic influence. That couldn't possibly be tired of hearing that we're sinners or God will judge them and condemn them to hell. It's obviously not because atheists are sick and tired of feeling like Christians are forcing their religion on everybody around them. Jeez, some atheists might be hostile because they're angry at God, but not all. <laughs> I wish I lived in an alternate reality like that where everything made sense and I had no sense of responsibility and could totally <laughs> blame it on everything else. Oh, thank God always, for faith, right? You can always count on good old Pat Robertson. Oh. This is why I was so disappointed when you crushed my dream of there was no rapture. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe next year. Maybe next year. Have they set a date? It usually happens about twice a year. Twice so a year. I'll, oh, I'll put my eggs for it next time. Six months to wait. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, my dear. So let's take a break right now. When we come back, we'll be with Dr. Ben Davis, and we'll talk, be talking about nuclear power. Oh. Nuclear power, nuclear. not nuclear. Nuclear. Say it right, people. And we'll be right back. If your skepticism is socially conscious and doesn't take itself too seriously, you might like life, the universe, and everything else. People like Ray Comfort are fond of saying, what use is half a wing, right? Have you ever seen a f***ing penguin? <laughs> Life, the universe, and everything else. Available on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and pretty much anywhere else. I don't know, Zoom? Is that still a thing? In a world torn apart by a lack of reason... Or at least, 
and I think it should be religion treated with ridicule and hatred and contempt. And I claim that right. In the morning. Hi, everybody. This is Robert Stanley from the Right to Reason podcast. And if you subscribe now, you'll get free... About the broadcast at the right to reason.com. is uh, Professor Ben Davis. He's a professor of physics and engineering, and he also studied nuclear physics. Professor Davis, thank you so much for joining us at Left of the Valley. Glad to be here. Excellent. Also here, you're a snappy dresser and a snazzy dancer. <laughs> and I'm good looking, too. There we go. <laughs> the whole package. <laughs> oh, yeah. Professor, maybe for our audience that are not aware of who you are, maybe you can give us a quick bio of who Ben Davis is. Oh, absolutely. Uh, and that this could lead to a whole lot of conversations that are a little off topic, maybe from what you planned. Mm-hmm. But um, I went to University of Notre Dame. I was always a physics major. And when I got to Notre Dame, I decided to major in nuclear astrophysics, Ooh. which is the nuclear processes that go on inside stars and even in the Big Bang, something called uh, uh, nucleosynthesis. So there were heavier elements that were made even in the in the Big Bang. I got my master's in that, and I had to change advisors because that guy wasn't going to work out in the long run. So then I went to straight nuclear physics, and I was college professor even when I graduated in 94. That was my first gig. I always like to tell this story. When I started teaching, my first gig paid $28,000 a year. Hmm. So I say... I like scotch, usually at this point in the introduction, and I was never going to be able to drink any scotch at the tune of $28,000 a year, so I quickly reinvented myself as a computer programmer, software developer, and that was actually my career for 20 years. I did a stint building machines like conveyor systems and robotics and things like that as an electrical engineer, and then finally, I made enough money at that that I've sort of semi-retired. Annie works too, so that helps. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we don't have any kids. But finally, I went back to teaching, which I really enjoyed doing. I just couldn't, you know, I just didn't want to be in debt my whole life from the grad school years. Yeah. I so get now I'm back to being a teacher again. Excellent. Now, you know what? I, I'm, I'm very sorry because I'm going to make a, a, a tangent right away because you said you, you studied uh, uh, nuclear astrophysics. Uh, astrophysics, uh, And I got to ask, you know, you know when they say uh, you get the people like Lawrence Krauss that used to say, you know, the, the, fur, uh, the nuclear furnaces of stars is where all the elements that we have on the periodic, uh, uh, periodic tables are made. Is that true? Pretty much. So uh, uh, everything bang, from carbon to oxygen and everything is made in the furnaces of stars. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, you, you pretty much have to assume that we started out with hydrogen. Uh, the Big Bang nuclear synthesis thing actually uh, says that you could have trace amounts of, let's say, up to boron, which is pretty low on the periodic table. It's, it's element number five or six, if I remember right. But... There are observations that even first-generation stars, and we do have first-generation stars in the Milky Way galaxy, 
which goes to my talk about search for extraterrestrial intelligence. We go off on that tangent anytime soon. Mm -hmm. But even first-generation stars have a few heavier elements in them. Mm -hmm. So some of that nuclear fusion happened even during the Big Bang. But, yeah, for, for all intents and purposes, it, it's happened from stars and the stars getting old and going nova and then spreading those heavier elements back out into the universe. So, so forgive my ignorance because I, I'm, I'm, a bit, I'm a bit of a dumbass. So you got a mass of uh, hydrogen, which is essentially what most stars are composed of, right? Right. And they, they, they for lack of a better term, burn until there's enough fusion between the hydrogen elements to actually form helium, right? Right. And then that process keeps going until you get it some heavier elements? It does. And, you know, it'll, uh, the fusion, it's, it's funny. One of the, you know, I should write an article about this sometime if I haven't already. I think I may have. I'll have to go back and look. But uh, one of the coolest graphs that I, I like to, to bring up when I'm lecturing or whatever mm -hmm. is... It's a graph of binding energy per nucleon, which I'll try to explain briefly, you know, without visuals here. It's a little tough, but we'll, we'll make it work. Okay. And it's, it shows how much binding energy there has, how much nuclear binding energy each atom has based on its atomic weight. And what you see is you see that graph dip down very quickly to lead, uh, or I'm sorry, down to iron 58, which is about middle of the periodic table. Um, and then it starts to go back up, out to lead, 208, you know, something really heavy. Hmm. So what you see there is as long as you're fusing small atoms, you get energy out. The more you fuse them together, the more they, you know, skitter off away with extra kinetic energy, which turns into temperature, which causes the stars to burn and keep going. Um, so as long as you're fusing something small, you get energy out. But then when you hit around iron 58, it, it's no longer an exothermic process anymore. It's an endothermic process. So the next thing that happens is the core of this star, as it gets iron rich, starts to not give off as much radiation as it used to, not to give off as much radiative energy anymore. And so it's kind of sort of starts to burn out, but then... It's this pressure coming from the inner core that's pushing the star out in the first place. Mm -hmm. So when it starts to burn out and it starts to no longer be able to keep that energy, that reaction going in the core, the whole star starts to collapse in on itself from the gravity. Oh. So then you get this big compression wave of this star falling in on itself, suddenly driving up the pressure and the temperature in the core of this star to some insane amount, and the reactions just take off. And it doesn't matter whether they're endothermic or exothermic anymore. If it's going to burn, you know, if it can burn, if you can ram two atoms together, it's going to do it. And that's when the star goes nova. So it, it's kind of like this implosion first that drives up all the pressures and temperatures. And then all of these atoms inside the core of this star, uh, you know, start to get compressed together. They turn into lead. They turn into plutonium. Well, not plutonium, uh, but uh, uranium radioactive materials, mm -hmm. they turn into really heavy elements, and then it sort of blows up and goes back the other way and spreads all that stuff back out into space. I missed a few key steps there because I felt like I was going long. But no, that's, no, no, that's, no, that's, that's fascinating. Idea. 
Okay, that's, that's, that's been answering my question, exactly what I, I was wondering there. Perfect. All right, well, today we'll talk about n- nuclear power. Um, maybe you can give us a, a brief layman's history on how humans came into the nuclear age. Okay, that's, that's not a question I've ever been asked before, but um, yeah, it's kind of fun to think about this. Uh, I think most of your nuclear stuff started in the... 20s and 30s, mm-hmm. mostly in Germany, uh, because, you know, you, you, of course, everybody knows about Madame Curie, so she was in, in France, but um, it became a new field where people would discover this uranium in the soil, and they realized, hey, this stuff gives off strange rays. It exposes film, for example, mm-hmm. uh, without any light, and so they, they knew something weird was going on, but they didn't know exactly what. They certainly didn't necessarily think it was going to be a um, usable energy source. They thought this stuff just gave off these strange rays and they needed to figure out what was going on. And of course, parallel to that, you had people like Rutherford who was scattering uh, electron uh, electron gun uh, particles off of gold atoms in a foil and he was probing the size of the nucleus uh, you know, and he, and he realized that the nucleus of the atoms were 99.9999% of the mass of the atom is, and it's concentrated in this really small area. You know, and, and the analogies that they used was, you know, you shoot this cannonball at this, at this target, and most of the time the cannonball would just shoot right through the target. But every now and again, it hit dead onto one of these nuclei, what we know now to be nuclei in the atoms, and come straight back at you. Because mm. it would hit this really massive thing and get knocked back 180 degrees right back at your at your uh, beam source, which didn't make any sense at all if you think of the atom as sort of this cookie of nuclear material that's evenly distributed. Mm-hmm. So that then led to our first idea of what an atom looked like. Uh, and then it was actually almost a mistake the first time you got anything that even seemed like a nuclear reactor. Somebody made a big pile of uranium somewhere, and they realized that it was getting hot all on its own, and they didn't, they couldn't um, figure out exactly why. They published a paper about it, and then you know how they like to uh, promote women in science and and uh, and, that, and that kind of thing now to to encourage STEM for the ladies these days. Yeah, today, uh, <laughs> not back <so>, then. <laughs> well, but there were some pretty good ladies even back then. So there was a, a lady named Lise Meitner. Uh, who actually saw the paper saying, we got this pile of uranium, it's getting hot, we don't know why. And she actually explained it. She said, well, you know, you're actually breaking these uraniums down into smaller uh, atoms, and when you do that, you're giving off heat. And so she was credited being the first to explain what nuclear fission was. Mm. Hmm, fantastic. And then after that, it it moved on into another... uh, as the 20s and 30s and World War II happened, a, a, we saw the potential for nuclear weapons with that. Right. And some of that's just an extension of chemistry, right? One of the things that I do at the cons now is uh, I have a, a talk I like to give called The Science of Explosives. So, you know, if you've got an energy source, you know, a very a high-powered energy source, and you can figure out a way to detonate that energy source all at once— well, you know, then you got an explosive. And just like in chemistry, you can do that on the nuclear level, too. 
You can take something that's radioactive, say this pile of uranium, for example. Mm -hmm. You already know it gives off heat. You know, the first experiment in the 30s showed that. Mm -hmm. So what happens if it's given off heat and it's given off energy and it's quote-unquote burning on some level? What happens if you compress it together and you drive up the temperatures really high in it? You, you make these atoms so close together that they can't help but knock, knock into each other even faster, really fast in some cases. And so, yeah, some people like Einstein came along. He certainly wouldn't alone in this, but he's the one that wrote the famous letter to, uh, to the president at the time. And, of course, I just had brain lock. I forget who the president at the time was. <laughs> Come uh, was to it, me in a uh, minute. Uh, Roosevelt? Roosevelt. Or was it, or was it Truman? You. Yes. So he's the one that wrote the letter to Roosevelt that was famous, and it launched the whole Manhattan Project and all that. Mm -hmm. But as a concept, everybody understood that you could take any kind of exothermic uh, reaction, and if you can find it enough and you drove the temperatures and the pressures up enough, you could make it be an explosive reaction. So it was really just an extension of, of chemistry at that point to say, hey, this stuff's a power source. We can make a bomb out of it. Mm -hmm. Really big one. Yeah, and of course we know what happened after that. That's just a part of history. But today we're not talking about that. We're talking more about the uh, nuclear power as a, uh, as a source of energy. Right. So, of course, I did kind of bring that in for, for my own reasons. Mm, but, uh, of course. Uh, you know, and that's and that's how I'll start with the nuclear power thing. It's like burning coal on some level, but it's doing it with a much more efficient medium. And you get much more energy out, you know, per pound, if you will, of, of fuel. But just like any other fuel, you can make an explosive out of it. But it can still be safe. It can still be useful. You can get a lot of good work out of it. You don't ever have to blow anything up, mm -hmm. you know. It takes extra work and effort to turn a can of gasoline into an explosive. Mm -hmm. It takes extra work and effort to turn a pile of uranium into a bomb. Yes. So let's make a quick little detour here, and just for the uh, for the audience's sake, uh, because I think a lot of time that when people think about nuclear, they, they think about, they know very little about it. And uh, mm -hmm. maybe you can uh, define for us, what's the difference between uh, fusion and fission? Oh, yeah. That's, that's easy, and I sort of set you up for that one, too. Um, fission is when you when you break something apart. So you actually make a, if you will, sort of a fissile crack in it, and you break it into two pieces, not necessarily even in size, but you break it apart. Now, if we go back and we talk about that binding energy per nucleon mm -hmm. graph, mm -hmm. if you're up in something heavy like uranium, uranium is actually heavier than lead, um, so if you're up in something heavy like uranium and you break it into two smaller pieces, you move down that graph towards iron 58 again. Mm. So you're taking something that's massive and sort of doesn't want to be that big of an atom, and you're making it more stable. You're breaking it into two smaller atoms that are more tightly bound together. And in the act of doing that, you're getting energy out of it. So that's fission, breaking something apart, breaking something big and heavy apart. Fusion would be if you took two light atoms, like what goes on inside a star, and you, and you combine them together. Mm. And so you increase the binding energy again per nucleon because you've taken two things that were independent and, and didn't have to be bound to anything, and you're binding them together with something else, and therefore you're getting energy out. You can think of binding energy as sort of a negative energy that's lost. So when you bind two things together, 
they lose energy and they give that energy away as kinetic energy or heat, mm-hmm. you know, inside the material that you're you're using. So fission is breaking two things apart to make a smaller couple smaller atoms. Fusion is taking two smaller atoms and making a bigger atom out of it. Okay. And if you're, if you're fusing lightweight atoms, you get energy out. And if you're fissioning heavy atoms, you're getting energy out. If you go the other way, if you try to fuse heavy atoms, then that's going to be an, an endothermic process. You can do it, but it takes energy out. It's, it, it'll cool down the reaction, not speed it up. Hmm. Interesting. So, I, I, out of curiosity, for my um, my uh, uninformed uh, brain there, when you when you do uh-huh. fission on something heavy like uranium, now I don't know how many what's the the nuclear number of uh, uranium. I'm assuming it's a fairly high number there. Yeah, uh, two thirty five. Two thirty five. Okay, two thirty five, two thirty eight. So let's say you you do something to 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 break that uh, uranium apart. Does it split evenly, or does it split into? You know, do, can we actually control that? Um. Actually, it's it's like any other chemical reaction. You know, when you were taught chemistry, and, and again, I shouldn't say like any other chemical reaction because it's not chemical. Mm-hmm. But when you're taught chemistry in high school, you, you throw this element in with that element, and these things will happen. And they'll write a balanced equation up on the board to show you, you know, this molecule combines with this atom, and you end up with this molecule on this other side of the equation. Yes. And, and that's the product. Now... That's true. We certainly don't want to make make fun of the chemist or anything here, but anytime you mix a bunch of chemicals together, chances are you're going to have other reactions that occur. So, you know, you got to remember that this might be the main reaction that you're balancing all this stuff out, but there's probably other side reactions too, right? Mm-hmm. And it's the same way with nuclear fission. There is a main reaction uh, where you break the thing into, I think it's polonium and krypton, which are not evenly sized at all. Okay. One half's a lot bigger than the other. Um, but that's the main reaction. You have other reactions on the side that happen as well. The other thing that's key to a nuclear reactor is the whole um, chain reaction. So the other reason why that particular reaction is important is a neutron hits this uranium atom. It splits it into these two other atoms. But in addition to splitting into these two other larger pieces, it gives off three neutrons to go along with it. Mm. So now you've got three neutrons floating through your reactor bed that can hit another atom and cause another split. And so it's it becomes this self-driving process where you break one atom, it might break up to three more atoms, and so it keeps going, oh. which is why it sits there and gets hot when you make a reactor pile. A bit like a snowball effect, essentially. It is a snowball effect. So, As a matter of fact, when you go all the way to the atomic bomb, that's when you've gone super critical. So it's that's when it snowballs out of control, if you will. Cool. I, I, out of curiosity, I, I find this topic absolutely fascinating. Do we uh, are we good enough to let's say, for example, you have a, an element of I don't know the two two forty is a, the, let's say the number you have. There. Can we actually? decide how much we want to cut it down can we take like one or two neutrons off are we that precise or do we just shooting and it's going to automatically do whatever it's supposed to do well now so this is now we're splitting hairs about what kind of nuclear physics we're talking about (laughs) we're getting a bit Um, complex here (laughs) pardon me (laughs) maybe we're getting some a bit too complex well go ahead well i mean one of the stories i love to tell because it always wows people when i tell it is I got all the way to grad school. I had my PhD, and I'd never seen a nuclear reactor. Mm. 
because nuclear reactors are uh, sort of macroscopic, big scale. You take a big pile of uranium and you and you get heat out of it. And if there's some side reactions or whatever, or this one little atom breaks into something else, who cares? You just go on. The, the process will continue. The kind of thing you're talking about, yes, it can be done. You use a particle accelerator for that kind of thing. Oh, uh, okay. So my entire, you know, my entire stint in grad school, I had particle accelerators I played with. I never needed a nuclear reactor. So, you know, I went to finally one day, uh, one Thanksgiving, I was, uh, I'd seen, I'd looked at my in-laws as long as I wanted to, because <laughs> we were staying there for I don't know five six days. You know, Annie had an extended vacation, and she's visiting with her sister, and they're talking about all her high school stories and stuff. It's like, okay, I've heard these stories about six times now. So I got in the car, and I went down the road to the nuclear power plant. And and because it's like the day before Thanksgiving, I'll walk in the place, and it's completely empty. They've got like a visitor center, right? And so there's a secretary there, and she's like, hi, can I help you? And I said, sure. I said, you know, and I asked her about the place. I said, how long has the plant been open, that kind of thing. And she says, well, so what brings you in the day before Thanksgiving? And I said, well, actually, I'm a nuclear physicist. I have a Ph.D. and teach college and all that. And I've never seen a reactor before, so I wanted to come in here and, and see what I could, you know, see what I could see. Mm-hmm. You know, just because I'm tired of looking at my in-laws at this point. <laughs> and she looks at me, her mouth agape, right? She's like... You're a nuclear physicist, and you've never seen a nuclear reactor. <laughs> yes, ma'am. That's that's my story, and I'm sticking to it. Particle accelerators all day long. Never seen a nuclear reactor. She says, you stand right there. She picks up the phone, and uh, two minutes later, some dude comes up in a golf cart with an extra hard hat, and he says, are you Dr. Ben? I said, yes, sir. He says, come with me. So... I literally, you know, he takes me into the plant, and he literally walks me around the whole plant, showing me the reactor and everything. That's a grand tour. Only time I've ever seen a nuclear reactor. Yeah, the grand and tour. That's awesome. It, it was awesome. The uh, punchline of that story, the reason I like to tell it so much, it was in, obviously, it's the day before Thanksgiving, so we're talking about, say, November 21st or so, mm-hmm. 2001. Mm. Something else happened in 2001. Yes. On September 11th. Yes. I, I'm so, actually shocked that it was so easy for you to get in. <laughs> and, and one of the reasons I remember it is they had, they were drilling holes in the floor and they were erecting what looks like, you know, pieces of steel look like they came off the hull of a battleship or something. Mm-hmm. And I said, what are you putting these pieces of steel up in the concrete for? I said, is these shadow bars for radiation or what? And, and the guy was like, no, that's for the guards to hide behind if we get attacked by terrorists. And I'm like, oh, well, I can see why you might be bolstering your defenses at this point. Yeah. But the thing that I love to tell about that story is we didn't get all paranoid about how who got on planes and all that kind of stuff. It didn't happen the day after 9-11. A lot of those things didn't go into effect you know, until six months later when the laws got made and people started getting all hand-wringy about it and mm-hmm. what should we do next. But, yeah, it, it was literally, you know, two, three months after after 9-11, and I'm still walking through this nuclear power plant. That guy didn't know me from Adam. But he, he took me through and showed me the whole place. Wow. <laughs> That's a pretty impressive story, actually. <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, Doctor Davis. Um, when people think about nuclear energy, uh, unfortunately, as humans, we have a nice, nice tendency to remember all the misses, and uh, we don't think about the positives. You know, they right. think about things like Three Mile Island, Chernobyl, Fukushima. Um, is nuclear power safe? Oh my goodness. Um, well, you know, there's a couple of things that I always like to point out here. If you're gonna play with power, if you want your house to be warm in the in the winter time and cool in the summertime and lit up at night and all that kind of stuff, uh, you know, anytime you play with a power source, there's a da- there's an inherent danger in it. Mm-hmm. So for me, it becomes a question of: Do you trust the scientists and engineers to harness that power, or do you want to just throw your hands up and move back into the cave? Uh, you know, because those are your two options. So nuclear power is in a lot of ways, like a chemical plant, you do cause a reaction, you do get heat out, and then you do funnel that heat into usually a steam generator or something like that, a turbine, uh, and you make electricity with it. Nuclear power any more dangerous than having to deal with toxic chemicals or you know other things. And, and I can hear people in the world just listening to this talk and screaming in unison, you know, what about radioactive waste? Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. You definitely got to deal with radioactive waste. There's definitely some other things that come with this nuclear power business that you didn't have to deal with when you were just burning coal in your fireplace or wood. Yeah, so there are other wrinkles with this. You know, with great power comes great responsibilities. You know, as Peter Parker, you know, as his uncle might say, mm-hmm. uh, as Uncle Ben would say, <laughs> Spider-Man. <laughs> you know, so, yeah, it, it's... It, it can be dangerous. It can be downright deadly uh, if you're getting somebody that's trying to deliberately be destructive with it. Um, but it's just the next step in our progress. And if you want to embrace progress, this is the power source that you need to embrace it. Mm-hmm. So, uh, um, you know, sometimes you hear about uh, the, 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 the main opponents to nuclear power is usually the green movement. And right. uh, they will come up, for example, I've heard things like, um, we can't use nuclear as a power source because there is uranium depletion uh, across the, the world. Not enough uranium to generate enough power for all these power plants if, all, if the whole world decided to go to uh, nuclear. is that First of all, is that true? That is utter bullshit. Really? Um, you can make what's called breeder reactors. And again, the technology's there. Uh, you only burn uh, of the U-238 uh, in a nuclear in a uh, nuclear pile. Uh, you know, it's only about three percent of the ore. You know, even when you concentrate it, uh, and you only burn a fraction of that even when you run a nuclear reactor for years. So, if you run in a breeder reactor configuration, here's the fun stuff: you can take these neutrons and you can moderate these neutrons so that they if they don't split an atom apart, maybe they collect in an atom. And so you can actually build a reactor that has more fissile nuclear material in it at the end of its life than it did at the beginning of its life. You've got to take it out, you've got to re-refine it, of course, and you've got to put it in a different type of reactor to burn it. But a lot of this so-called waste that these people are talking about not being able to bury in the desert because the greenies killed that too. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of that stuff could be made into fuel again and run into other types of nuclear reactors. There is plenty of fuel. Really? 
So, so, oh, yeah. so not only you're generating power, but you're also generating the material that will generate power. Oh, yeah. I mean, if we wanted to talk about the, the whole bomb program, uh, you know, back in when it was dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, mm-hmm. the first bomb they made was a uranium bomb. They only had enough refined uranium to make one of them, but they knew the design would work. So they dropped it on Hiroshima without testing it. They had hoped Japan would surrender after the first bomb was dropped. They didn't. So their plan B was they were making plutonium in these breeder reactors in Washington, uh, Hanford, you know, Washington State, not Washington, D.C. And they said, guys, in our breeder reactors, we can get you enough plutonium to make another bomb every two weeks. So the second bomb was a much more complicated design because it was a plutonium bomb. It was an implosion-type bomb. And so that's the one they tested at Trinity to make sure it worked the first time before they actually dropped it on Japan. But it was going to take them years to make a second fat, uh, going to take them years to make a second little boy type uh, nuclear bomb. It was, they were going to actually be able to make the implosion type bomb, the fat man bomb. They were going to make a new one every two weeks. uh, And they were going to keep going if Japan didn't surrender. Wow. And that was her plan for doing it. So, yeah, you can actually make reactors that make more fuel than what they started with. Mm-hmm. Uh, Dr. Davis, you know, uh, in, in light of the failures of uh, Three Mile Island and, and uh, uh, Chernobyl and Fukushima, um, people, of course, are, are, are afraid of nuclear power. I can understand that to some right. extent. Uh, but there is the argument that Chernobyl, for example, was a very old style of nuclear power plant, and today's power plants are much more safe. But then you get something like Fukushima, which is a fairly recent one, too, is it not? Uh, it's fairly recent. As I recall, it was about six, seven years ago when it happened. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, let's. I want to make one thing abundantly clear before we start. I of want course. to treat Chernobyl different than any other nuclear disaster. Okay. Because. Everything else, whether you're talking about Three Mile Island or Fukushima or whatever else you can bring up, the engineers thought it was a win. Uh, when Fukushima melted down and failed, even with the, the failed uh, backup systems and all of that, it was basically contained. The engineers you know, that actually ran the plant, Three Mile Island was the same way. They thought it was a win. Uh, okay, we got a little bit of radioactive gas that we had to vent, or we got a little bit of seawater that got, you know, some tritium in it. Uh, tritium, by the way, is not particularly dangerous, you know, from a biological point of view. Um, but it stayed contained. You didn't, you know, like pollute the world with it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so the engineers thought they'd won. They did not realize that they had, had not won, quote-unquote, until after the media got a hold of the event and made a big deal out of it for, let's say, the first week after the event happened. Um, you know, it, Fukushima and Three Mile Island both were literally more, not much more than a tempest in a teapot. Uh, you know, Fukushima, you still see stories about it every now and then? Yes, you do. You get all these graphics about how Fukushima is uh, contaminating the entire Pacific at this point. Oh, yeah, yeah, that's a friggin' joke, dude. That's total I, bullshit. I actually, I give a talk uh, in, you know, called Junk Science, mm-hmm. and, and when I go and do the cons, I have a whole section on Fukushima. 
Well, wow. uh, and it's of course it tur- you know you got to be careful. You'll have to moderate me carefully on this because I'll go into an hour long rant about it. <laughs> <if you let. laughs> but you know, no. First of all, some of the things that I've seen, some of the graphics I've seen on the internet, they're they're quoting cesium one thirty seven levels in the Pacific Ocean. Um, just for starters, cesium one thirty seven is not a byproduct of a reactor. It's a byproduct of weapons testing. Hmm. Uh, so you usually don't see cesium-137 unless you're setting off atomic bombs. So there is a lot of cesium-137, and by a lot, I mean like 10 to the minus 6, you know, atoms in there, you know, per, you know, per one per million atoms. Mm-hmm. Um, but there is a lot of cesium-137 in the Pacific Ocean. The reason it's in the Pacific Ocean is because of all the bomb tests that we did, Bikini Atoll, for example. Yeah, exactly. Uh, all the bomb tests that we and the Russians did up until 1964, when they banned atmospheric testing of nuclear weapons. So they stopped, you know, testing atom bombs and hydrogen bombs in the Pacific Ocean in 1964, the year I was born. So it's easy for me to remember. Um, so, yes, there's cesium-137 in the Pacific Ocean. It's a remnant from bomb testing back in the 50s and 60s. Mm. And it has about, a, if I remember right, about a 35-year half-life. So there was a lot of it in the ocean back in, let's say, 1950. There's about, come about 1985, there was about half of what there was in 1950. Mm-hmm. And come about now, there's about half again of what there was in, you know, 1985 or so. So there's about, it's down to about a quarter of what it once was. Yeah. And nobody died from the salmon. Nobody, there were no three-eyed fish coming out of the ocean in the 50s. It's all horseshit. But we did did see Godzilla come out of there at some point, right? Yeah, yeah, that's true. Godzilla came out and and all his friends, right? But yeah. So, you know, there's actually, and and the funny thing is, is because there was so much of it, relatively speaking, there's actually less radiation in the Pacific Ocean right now <laughs> than there was right after Fukushima. Hmm. Because of this cesium-137 that was already there that continues to decay away over time. So I tell people all the time, it's like if you're afraid of the, if you live on the West Coast and you're afraid of the damn salmon, pack it on dry ice, send it to me. I'll help you with it. <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> Dr. Ben, there are some people out there that are talking about a, uh, a thorium for use in new in nuclear uh, as nuclear power. Is there anything to that? I mean, I'm completely unaware. I mean, I heard that I hear that term on a regular basis, but I have no idea what the nuclear uh, people think about if there is there such a thing to begin with. Oh, absolutely, there's such a thing. Um, many people say there was a there was a point in history where we were trying to do something called atoms for peace. We, the United States, mm-hmm. um, so we were selling a particular brand of nuclear reactor that was water moderated. Um, which, by the way, that was one of the things that made Chernobyl particularly bad, as it wasn't a water moderated reactor; it was a graphite moderated reactor. So you basically got a bunch of coal sitting in your reactor pile. Uh, so you got a source of heat, the reactor itself. You got a fuel, which is the graphite that moderates it. And when that, when the uh, containment vessel broke and air hit it, you know the whole fire triangle, right? You mm-hmm. got fuel, you got oxygen, yep. and you got heat. 
So that became a fire that they couldn't put out, you know, because they couldn't make the nuclear pile stop generating heat. So they dump water on it, and it would just evaporate away, and it would catch fire again and turn into smoke and go off into the air and uh, really pollute everything way downrange. So that's why Chernobyl is different than any other nuclear disaster. So I know that was a sidebar. Coming back to the uh, Atoms for Peace, you, most of your commercial reactors are water-moderated, but and, and that's a much safer design to begin with. But on top of that, a lot of people say that the Atoms for Peace program sort of stymied uh, other types of development for other types of reactors, thorium salts being one of them. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can think of the thorium as sort of a briny. Uh, it's got a low melting point thing, and you, you circulate it through the reactor. And if it overheats, you can put a little plug of something with a slightly higher melting point at the bottom of this reactor, and it'll melt the plug in the bottom of it, and this stuff will just drain out, and so it can never melt down. If oh. It's got a safety plug that it'll melt out, and this thorium salt will just drain out into a basin underneath the reactor and spread out over the ground underneath enough that it won't go critical, on, and it'll eventually just automatically cool down. Uh, it's not. It doesn't generate as much power uh, per pound, if you will, or per size of the plant as other nuclear reactors might. Mm-hmm. But it's very safe. It's a perfectly fine way to generate electricity, generate heat to run a turbine again. Um, so yeah, it's certainly uh, something that's worth pursuing. There's all kinds of reactor designs when you get out there and look, and a lot of it was people trying to address safety concerns and stuff like this and of course certain certain greenies are just having none of it you can't as far as they're concerned you can't design any reactor that's going to be safe enough for them to ever be accepting of it Mm -hmm. but you got the thorium reactors it'll shut down automatically if they if they have problems you've got a thing called a pebble bed reactor which is basically where you wrap you think of a bunch of billiard balls in the side in the bottom of your reactor, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So you basically wrap all your uranium in a ceramic shell, and so the nuclear material can never physically get close enough to generate enough heat to cause a meltdown. So you know these pebble bed reactors, you can literally walk up to the console, randomly turn all the dials on the console, walk away from it, and this thing will still never melt down. Whoa! And you know, in that same vein, you know, a lot of the reactors that we have had problems with, Three Mile Island, Chernobyl, uh, and, and uh, they're, they're 50s generation reactors because nobody will let us build a damn new reactor without having a cow over it. Hmm. So, you know, the electricity still has to keep flowing. The same people that are bitching about nuclear power still want their lights to be on when they go home at night yeah, after course. they come home from the demonstration, right? So... A lot of these reactors are 1950s designed reactors that were never taken offline and never replaced with something more modern because nobody will let us build anything more modern. Hmm. So, Dr. Davis, in your expert opinion, when we look at the future, should or must nuclear be part of the solution on top to, to maybe to supplement uh, solar and wind? Oh, I think it absolutely has to be. It has to be. Uh, I think solar power is great. I think wind power is great. I think geothermal is great. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we will never be able to generate power in the levels that we like to enjoy it uh, with with just that. 
There's just, you know, the photovoltaics just aren't good enough. Uh, you know, there's only so many rivers you can dam up and make hydroelectric power out of. Mm-hmm. There's only so many uh, geysers you can cap and make geothermal power out of. And even when you cap, you know, even when you, you know, get every resource you can together in that, you know, in, the, in that green vein, uh, you might be able to make up for about 30% of what the grid requires. Uh, you know, where are you going to get the other 70% of your power? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, the other thing that I like to point out to people, uh, you know, which goes to a completely different discussion about a completely different thing, though, is, is, is the electric vehicles. You know, at some point, because we want to be green and we want to stop burning fossil fuels, people are going to start coming home. They're going to start plugging their cars in at night. Yeah. So now you've got, let's say, double the requirements for the power grid that you had 20 years ago when everybody's driving an electric car all of a sudden. Again, you're not going to be able to ramp up your grid with solar power fast enough to handle that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. Nuclear power is what you've got that can generate as much power as you need for however long you want it uh, and not do damage to the environment in terms of global warming. You know, we're choking to death in these greenhouse gases now because people didn't want to get rid of the coal burning plants and replace them with nuclear power plants 30, 40, 50 years ago. Mm-hmm. If we'd done that, we wouldn't be having the problems we're having now. Hmm. No, it's a very good point. Uh, maybe I should also bring the point in that uh, nuclear power has demonstrated to be more than reliable in the uh, space program, right? Some, oh, of yeah. the, some of these satellites like Voyager and all that are still powered by some form of nuclear power. So, and they're Absolutely. still they're still functional. <laughs> oh yeah, oh yeah. You know, we still get signals from Voyager and and the first Pioneer that went out there. It's amazing. Shot off in the fifties, you know, because they've got nuclear batteries in them. Exactly, absolutely amazing. Uh, Doctor Davis, you have your finger kind of uh, on the pulse, I guess, of the uh, nuclear community. What's next for them? What's the next exciting news coming down the pipe from these guys? Well, of course, everybody wants to talk about fusion. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and the and the constant joke about fusion is it's always 15 years away so you know if you'd ask some guy some nuclear engineer in the 50s you know how far are we from fusion he'd have told you 15 years yep uh, you know he's maybe 20 you know but um, <laughs> and we're yeah, talking about cold fusion here 2018 when are we going to get to fusion they still say about 15 years out <laughs> so fusion remains to be about 15 years out uh it's hard to do it's hard to take these lightweight atoms and compress them to these huge densities and these really high temperatures, you know, analogous to the core of the, you know, what goes on in the core of the sun, for example, so that you can push these two helium atoms together and make something heavier out of it, lithium or something, right? Uh, you know, it, it, so you can get energy out, but it takes a whole lot of energy and containment to, to putting it, put into it first before you get that net excess of energy that you can then utilize to, you know, again, run a generator or whatever. But that, of course, is where the whole field is pointed right now, is infusion. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. 
cool. Dr. Davis, I, I must admit, I'm a bit of an environmentalist myself. I do have a, being, have a green streak, and I always kind of stood on the fence as far as nuclear is concerned, but I think you've pushed me on the nuclear side right now with your, with your wisdom. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad to hear that. You know, I'm an environmentalist too, by the way. Yeah. You yeah. know, I mean, I'm all for saving the planet. I, 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 I totally— I told, strategy than most people do. I, I totally see, you know, as, you know, for the longest time when I was much younger, I always thought too that nuclear was the big no-no. But now I'm uh, there's a couple of myths that we've debunked today, and I really appreciate that you doing that for us today. Uh, but Do- Dr. Davis, this is your chance. If you want to, if people want to know more about you and where to find you and talk to you, where can they find you? Be shameless, plug yourself, go right ahead. Oh, shameless plug of myself. Yeah, Absolutely. that's easy. Go to uh, facebook.com forward slash ask Dr. Ben. Mm-hmm. All run together like one big word. Ask and Dr. you'll ben. come right to my main page, and you can like my page, and you can. Get on there and argue with me about nuclear power if you want to. Fantastic. Dr. Ben, thank you so much for your time today. But before I let you go, i got to have you say, Hi, I'm Dr. Ben Davis, and I took a left to the valley. Hi, I'm Dr. Ben Davis, and I took a left to the valley. And that was Dr. Ben Davis. We learned a lot today about nuclear power. Nuclear power. Nuclear, nuclear power. power. Always good to Not have nuclear. Yeah, always good to have scientists on our show, isn't it? We, you know what? We've had a rush of good authors and scientists lately. We have. And uh, you know what? I, I, I'm really happy with that because I think one of the big things we try to do with the show is, of course, to uh, bring in uh, more people and more knowledge. Yeah, and you never know when someone is listening to one of our science shows that has an interest in that, but doesn't know a whole lot about it, and they get motivated because now they learn That's right. a lot more. And, and it, if we uh, yeah. manage to de- debunk a couple of myths in the process, de- myth debunking, I think, is one thing that our podcast, you know, is is oriented around. Mm-hmm. We do we do a lot of that. Excellent. In one way or the other, maybe not directly, but we do we do a lot of myth 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 <laughs> Excellent. If we could just say it. <laughs> if we could say it, so yeah. much better. better. Yeah. Time for my rant. It's been a couple of rough weeks for Canada. First comes the humble tragedy, and then this week's senseless attack in Toronto. And never have been more proud to be Canadian. We saw unprecedented generosity from donors across 65 countries who reached out to Canadians in the hopes of providing some financial support for young hockey players. And then we saw the heroism of a lone Canadian police officer facing down a madman, yet keeping his cool. Yeah, this Canuck badass didn't kill him, even if nobody would have batted an eye if he had. He absolutely would have been justified to do so, since it also appeared like the suspect was also armed at the time. Even during the showdown, some citizens shouted at the cop to kill the suspect. The murderer himself appeared to want to be shot, suicide by cop, as he taunted the police officer to shoot him. The cool Canuck kept his head, and instead of turning the madman into some type of martyr for whatever twisted cause he dreamt up, he arrested the suspect so that he can face Canadian justice. And I can honestly say that I seriously doubt the same results would have happened if this has happened south of the 49th. The press lauded the police officer for doing the right thing, reported the facts, and didn't erroneously speculate on political terrorism. Pundits didn't condemn the officer for not killing the man, quite the opposite. They praised the restraint and applauded his training that kicked in that day. The Prime Minister kept cool and to the facts, without speculating about the motivation of the suspect or appeal to tougher laws. 
and the public didn't panic. One man made a difference. And this is what makes us different than our U.S. neighbors. So to my U.S. friends, they see that the American dream has moved to Canada. Now, I seriously contend that maybe in some ways we can teach you a thing or two. You want a better country? Start with your police force, your love of guns, and especially your media. They say the U.S. is home of the brave, and I tell you that it takes more courage and more heart to not shoot. Although it's easier to lodge a bullet in the head of a suspect instead of de-escalating the situation, the incident will provide more answers than what a primal gut reaction would compel us to do. And that's why it's called Civilizations. You ought to give it a try. And that takes us to the end of our show. Well, thank you very much, Nancy, for being with me today on the show. Oh, it was fun, just the two of us. I couldn't do it without you, dear. No, I couldn't, we couldn't do it without each other. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Come well, on. we could, but it wouldn't be as much fun, would That's it? right. No, my, okay. my, yeah, it would be really dull if it was just yeah, me. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> you can follow us at leftatvalley.com. You can follow us on Facebook, on Twitter, at LETV Podcast. Send us an email, leftatvalley@outlook.com. Give us a five-star review. It really helps the show and helps others find the show as well, and you can send me complaints to Nancy on the third floor but she just might throw you off the balcony <laughs> I've done it before I'll do it again we've established that she's a assassin for hire <laughs> coming up next week where's my schedule we'll be talking to John Wadey and the illusion of God's presence I, you know it's like that is it the title of a movie or a song or a book uh-huh. you know I just lo- I love the title of that should be fun yeah and then the week after that we'll be, our old friend Ethan Siegel will be coming back we'll be talking about the Big Bang that should be another one that's mm-hmm. very informative and after that we'll be talking to Dr. Michael Moore we'll be talking about children and autism I'm, vaccines I am looking forward to that one. And our old friend Del Ray comes back at the end of the month and why we cheat. Because mm-hmm. it pays off. <laughs> <laughs> and then for June, we'll have our His Rawness, the bane of creationism, uh, creationists all, all over the place. Arn Raw returns. Mm. And we'll also have the sultry voice of Seth Andrews and mm. 10 years of the Thinking Atheist podcast. Wow. Got a great lineup. Yeah, I, it is. It really is. I look for. Don't we just look forward to every every yeah. week? Yeah. And you know what? We got a damn good list of guests. <laughs> you know what? For this little show, I'm impressed all the time. Yeah. Thank you for all of those wonderful people who agree to come on our show. Well, you know, it just some of them you need to bribe others you need to blackmail but eventually they all say yes I know anybody that'd like to contribute to our blackmail fund oh. it's welcome my dear Nancy I'll see you next week you betcha until next time working backwards in the only action or tactic I plan to practice now is to attack them the parties of God's hands are bloodstained millions of murders by believers and they're all in God's name let me take a sec, don't mean to sound so hateful, but I swear to God, unintended, I find it disgraceful that many atheists are told to be quiet, you're not alone, speak your mind, time to let it be known. I'm proud to be an atheist, a skeptic, a non-believer, an infidel, a heathen, I call it how I see it. I say it's ignorance and you just call it faith and unsubstantiated claims, that's something to be ashamed, I'm an atheist. Atheist, atheist. I'm an atheist, 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 atheist.
Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.